Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate the conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on all things from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. We keep putting episodes in the books, Lisette. I can't even keep track of where we are right now. I know. It's crazy. I'm like, what if we run out of people? I get nervous, but I know that we're not going to. And I'm super excited about today's guest, Amelia Valenzuela, who knows what it's all about here in Arizona. Alrighty now, I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. Welcome everyone once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Let's do it. Lisette, this week has been a motherfucker. What have you been up to? Steven, this week has been so hard. We have a ballot referral, which you hear me talk about every week of this podcast. It's moving along. It's up for a floor vote on Monday. It was supposed to be heard on Wednesday and then on Thursday. We're prepping ourselves and we have a contentious meeting that I'm just emotionally preparing for. On a side note, Daniel went on his first away trip from us to a jazz competition in Flagstaff with the Tucson Jazz Institute. And when I tell you that because of everything that's been happening this week in the news, I was so extra anxious about him going away and us not being there, but he's good. He's been texting me. A recruiter from one of the colleges already was like, let's get your parents in touch with me scholarships your guitar playing is amazing oh let me find so, out so yeah so like in the midst of kind of what feels really heavy he's doing well i think you know i'm just tired of legislative session i'm just tired of this every year so on some exciting things we had a really um, positive teach-in on a statewide non-discrim that we're supporting in our state and we have another teach-in happening in march so just doing like all this grassroots organizing that like refuels my soul while juggling all the stuff that feels draining but yeah so jose and i went on like a date yesterday because we were kidless this night this weekend so yeah i'm just trying to enjoy the moment and not be like extra stress balls around daniel being gone how about you tell me what's going on man i don't even think i can keep up with any of that my my week has been pretty pedestrian by comparison i was going to talk about how Fuji hurt his knee so let's start there he's been playing soccer he's been playing travel soccer they changed from outdoor to indoor so he's been doing futsal and a few weeks ago he started talking about how his knee was hurting so he went to the primary care they referred us to an orthopedist and gave us some therapies to do on the interim and he seems like he's on the mend but every once in a while he'll complain about it so i'm like oh brother this kid he's 14 i feel like it's growing pains because he he like shot up like a reed and i feel like that's what it is so i'm hopeful that there's nothing serious going on with him and he's just getting bigger and taller and his body is not able to handle how much growth is happening but as any concerned parent i'm paying attention closely to see what's going on to make sure that he is in fact fine my mother's in nigeria and i've been playing caretaker to her home she lost her luggage so i've been dealing with ethiopian airlines ethiopian airlines if you're listening get your shit together because the process of finding lost luggage when y'all lost the luggage is 
far too difficult for anybody to have to go through. So get your shit together. I'm calling you out. Steven, you've still never filled us in on how the holiday went. When you say the holiday, are you talking about my trip to Nigeria? Yes, you've never told us or the listeners how it went. Oh my so goodness. is your mom still there? From when y'all so, went she went back? Since you asked, my mom leaves for Nigeria in November and she comes back at the end of March. So she's there for like a good four months. She is treated like a queen when she's there. We have this big old house, just all kinds of people waiting on her. So she's living her best life, the life of Riley, absolutely. When we went... We had an Airbnb in Victoria Island, Lakey Phase 1. If you know anything about Nigeria, the most exclusive part of Lagos is Victoria Island. And the most exclusive part of Victoria Island is this Lakey Phase 1 that we stayed at. It was a six-bedroom, six-bathroom, two-floor. Everybody had their own ensuite bathroom. We had chefs. Can I just talk about the chefs that were there cooking breakfast and dinner every day? We would tell them what we want for breakfast they would make it we tell them what we want for dinner they'd make it they go to the supermarket or the market to buy the food and would just like and this dude was like michelin star rated type chef the whole crew was a bunch of dudes from benin who could just cook their asses off we were eating so good every single day there was a pool so we were swimming we were like so close to the beach we could walk there it was just it was everything it was everything and and for the kids first trip to nigeria it was exactly what they needed. We went to the the conservatory. We went to a, like a, one of those jumping gyms indoors, you know, like Sky Zone kind of things. We went to multiple beaches. We went out to eat. We saw my cousins. Like we did so much activity that the kids obviously want to go back because they had the best time. I got outfits made. Oh, we said, whenever you see me next, know that I'm going to be rocking the finest handmade joints. I got like 15 outfits made, like literally 15 outfits. The whole family, we got a whole set of senators made, kimonos made. It was just, it was everything. It was everything. And so I'm glad that I haven't talked about that before because I really have nothing going on this week. So talking about Nigeria has been a welcome respite to my boring ass week. Oh my gosh, that sounds so exciting. Okay, I have to ask, how were your cousin and how were your mom with Hobbs? Everyone was good, no misgendering, nothing? So this dude is a dude. There's nobody who's seeing him and thinking anything other than. And so yes, no misgendering, no dead naming, none of that. My mom stayed in the village, so we didn't see her while we were there. We were in like the the city. She was in the village. And so there was no opportunity for her to do so. And she's been pretty good about that anyway. My cousins, again, they don't know my kids. Like for the most part, this is the first time anyone has seen anybody. And so they saw a dude. And so that was a dude. And so it's never been an issue. It would have just been if I had taken them to the village where my mom has all the pictures of us she's ever taken. Every family photo I've ever had of me and the family before Chanel passed is up in that house. And so everybody would be expecting to see two boys and two girls and not a girl and three boys. And so I was just like, yeah, this is not going to be the trip for that. And so the next time we go, it'll be post-top surgery, like whatever. You are just going to have to deal with the confusion on your own, but this is the name that you're going to be given. And so you're not going to have any other point of reference to refer to him other than what we give you and what we tell you. And so like, I'm comfortable now that he's been there and I'm comfortable now that we have surgery lined up and he's been on testosterone. He's got a face full of facial hair and he's all bulk 
looked out that it is what it is and folks are just going to have to contend with what they see and not pictures on the wall. And in fact, I'm probably going to go back before that next trip and take all that shit down so that there is no visual reference of that either because there's no reason for those pictures to be up when you know that that doesn't represent who they are today. So oh my gosh, I'm glad y'all had a good time. Oh yeah, the best. I, I feel hungry now thinking about all the delicious food. Oh my God. said when I tell you we ate like kings and queens and all types of people of court, we did. But I could talk about Nigeria and that trip all day, but we've got a show to do. So right. can we get to it? Let's get to it. Lisa, I, I don't think I have the space to talk about anything outside of Next Benedict. For those who are not aware, Next Benedict was a 16-year-old non-binary sophomore at Owasa High School in Oklahoma who apparently had been bullied for months and ultimately died after being viciously beaten in the bathroom of their high school by three other students. And what's so disturbing about all of this is that Oklahoma is one of those states that passed a law which said that people have to use the restrooms that align with their gender assignment at birth. And in this same state, students were bullying and harassing this for what I have been told is a straight A salt of the earth good person for no reason other than how they identified. And it just is as the parent of a trans child, of a, of a gender expansive child, it's one of the scariest things that you can see. Like talking about the, the deaths of anybody, any marginal person just because of their identity is very difficult. Talking about the death of a child is even more difficult. And knowing that that child's death was the result of violence enacted by other children, it's just, I can't, I can't even fully process all of that information. Yeah. When Daniel read, because Daniel read it before we could talk about it. It was online. So he saw it right away. And he's like, the descriptors could have been me. I mean, 16, sophomore, straight A's, loved Minecraft, like these things that are just very, I mean, like so many other kids, right? Like it brought up a lot for Daniel because he's experienced harassment by a classmate because of his gender identity. And so it just was really hard. And as, as families, I think we're all dealing with this like communal grief. And we just had lost Cecilia Gentili and that felt like communal grief. And it just, the world felt so heavy this week. Yeah. Last time my mom talked to me about it too. And she was asking me about the statement made by the parents and was curious around support. And obviously, I don't know the parents of Nex, but from the reports I had read, Nex was living with the grandmother. And so I, I just told my mom, I think it really highlights the fact that trans and non-binary youth often aren't supported at home or at school. And so school should be that place where they can have some level of relief to just learn and to be with their friends and to be supported. And so the whole situation is so unfortunate and next obviously deserved more. It's interesting that you highlight that point because I saw you on a HRC video of you providing testimony about Daniel's experience at school and Daniel's experience with supportive people and environments that enabled him to have a strong sense of self, notwithstanding what you've said about the experience of, of harassment and bullying that he did face, your representation of his experience is one that he was supported. He was supported in school and he was supported at home. And I can't imagine what it's like for children to not have that support at home or at school, how difficult it must be to exist in the intersection of no support from the people closest to you and or the people you have to spend 
spend inordinate amounts of time around. It's just a tragedy. And I just really hope people start to see just how damaging all of this anti-trans rhetoric, all of these anti-trans laws, all of this vitriol cast at trans people, what it does. It's poisoning the minds of our children who are now doing horrible things to one another. It's truly heartbreaking. And I think what makes the ballot referral we're dealing with feel even more cruel and purposeful is that we can now show a through line between the passage of SB 615, which was the school bathroom ban in Oklahoma, and what happens when laws like that are enacted. And it just feels cruel. I Georgia, I think, heard a bathroom ban yesterday. We have one on Monday. And so it's not lost on us what these politicians are really trying to do. Okay, so another state has enacted a law making it legal to discriminate against same-sex couples. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a law that allows people to refuse to solemnize marriage licenses if it violates their conscience or religious beliefs. I don't know how we formalized marriage equality at a federal level, and we still have these backward-ass states trying to circumvent it by passing laws that are clearly unconstitutional. And, and where does it end? If a person doesn't agree with interracial marriages because it violates their conscience, what then? It's a slippery slope that more and more states seem to be willing to slide down. In what can only be described as being completely tone deaf, the New York Archdiocese condemned the funeral for transgender activist Cecilia Gentili. Last week, Cecilia was laid to rest in a ceremony at St. Patrick's Cathedral, which was attended by over a thousand celebrants who came to honor the groundbreaking transgender advocate for sex workers, transgender people, and people living with HIV. The irony that they won't even hide their hate in this moment, especially because St. Patrick's was the site of a lot of ACT UP demonstrations and die-ins in the 80s. And the fact that they had a full church, which the priest literally said, we are never this full except for on Easter and or other holidays, to then condemn providing space for people to celebrate the life of Cecilia Gentili, it just felt gross. And it's clearly proof that as a religion, they are hateful. Well, I shouldn't say religion as a whole, but the institution continues to be hateful and bigoted and that there's been no real change, even though the Pope keeps putting out statements that they have. That partly said, the Pope, the literal head of your religious organization has said and continues to say to make space for LGBT plus people to honor lgbtq plus people that there is a place in the church for lgbtq plus people but the church people don't seem to agree and or they don't seem to remember these principles of honoring the least among us isn't that the thing jesus he was a person who honored the least among us like didn't we just see a super bowl ad of this dude washing people's feet and we're supposed to be like him i don't think jesus would have been mad that cecilia was receiving her flowers in death at saint patrick's i think he would have been like yeah i'm down with cecilia but you know catholic church what can you do i agree with you jesus would have been there celebrating with everyone and honoring her life of service service because that's what she did. She she had a full life of service where she created inroads for people to live equitably and with dignity. Absolutely. But there's so much more we could talk about on all of today's topics, but we've got to get to our guest. I'm so excited. Tamilia Valenzuela is a bilingual, disabled, 
neurodivergent, queer, Black, Latina, and at-large member of the Washington Elementary School District, a self-described mother and wife who lived in Arizona for 13 years, Tamelia proudly identifies as part of the Black, Latino, and LGBTQ communities and has worked with these and other underrepresented groups to find and use their voice. Tamelia is a community organizer and activist who prioritizes serving her community and working with various community organizations throughout the Valley. A fierce Poderosa holding space for her community to come together and utilize their power to create inspirational educational spaces for youth to thrive and develop. Everyone, please welcome Tamelia Valenzuela to our show. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm Hi. so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Really looking forward to this. Okay, so first question is, you and I were connected because of our community organizing a few years back. Mm-hmm. Both of us really focused on wanting to create support and resources for BIPOC youth and their families, especially like Latina families, where we felt like there was like a huge kind of gap in community care and resources. Tell us about yourself and why building community is so important, especially in Arizona. Well, I hate talking about myself. I still can never get used to that. Genuinely, I'm just a mom and a wife, and I just like to be of service to my community. I like to see people know that they hold power, and I think a lot of that comes from I felt so many times where I didn't have power, and I didn't know how to communicate what I needed or whatever the case may be. And so for me, community is like we take care of each other. You know, like we know we have us, and And at the end of the day, the people who are like the closest to us, like if there's nothing else, we have that love. And I think our community is so deeply rooted in love. And I would love to see our community be able to actually experience that outside of survival because survival takes so much away from you every day. And we all know it's so expensive to be low income, to be a part of these marginalized communities because of the different things you have to consider when you travel, like we were just talking about when you travel, you have to worry about like is anywhere on the way going to be a place that you cannot be because someone may hate your existence and so I think for me community is just empowering each other there's a way that we all can serve each other and serve ourselves and thrive it doesn't have to be a competition and so I'd really love to see our society actually embrace that because it's so beautiful when we're actually tied to each other rather than being isolated. And tell us about your past work because it's not in your bio but you you were ED for Lucha for a while for a long time actually um yeah I did do organizing with Lucha and I also was an immigration program coordinator there where I did help people fill out paperwork like their DACA paperwork citizenship residency renewal I also used to sit on the Arizona State PTA board where I was the diversity and inclusion chair and I've volunteered like throughout my son's whole like school life <laughs> I've been on the local PTA PTA. I just have always loved serving my community. I'm also a member of the Lambda Theta Nude Latina Sorority Incorporated. And so even then, um, one of the chairs I held actually was community service chair because it's just something I'm really, really passionate about. And I, I, like I said, we're all connected. And if we could just take care of each other, I think we could see a much more sustainable way of life. I love hearing about your deep roots in community service. It's clear that that's part of your ethos. And as your bio indicates, you're a 
not so newly elected member of the Washington Elementary School Board. When I was doing my research on you, I learned that it was a pretty contentious election. And so I just have to ask you, what inspired you to run for the school board in the first place? Well, if I'm going to be honest with you, I've had people trying to get me to run for several years, I think like almost like seven years prior to me running. And actually a couple of months before I even announced that I was going to run, one of my mentors had asked us at the end of a training, at a, the end of a cohort we had, if who's ready to run? And I was like, definitely not me. But I think what really kind of scared me when I did actually decide to run was, as we all know, here in Arizona, we have the AEL that is always getting threatened every year. And I think in 2022, I don't know what happened, but I it really scared me. And just thinking about what my son would lose, like if that didn't get passed, like it just really like kind of activated me. And I was like, okay, get off your butt and go run. And so I decided I was going to run and I announced actually a lot later than the other candidates. And so there was that like time because little did I know I ran in the largest K-8 elementary school district here in Arizona. <laughs> did not realize that. <laughs> and so I had to collect a lot of signatures, which was a challenge because most candidates go out and get their own signatures. Me, I'm disabled, so I couldn't canvas. Um, so my wife and my son, the local Dems at the time that were there did also help. I value education so much and I was just really, really scared of what was going to happen if the AEL didn't pass. For our listeners, can you explain what AEL is? Yeah, it's the aggregated expenditures limit, I think is what it stands for. I'm really bad with acronyms, but it's basically the budget for K-12 school districts here. And so every year here in Arizona, the legislator goes to this thing where they're going to decide if they're going to raise it or if they're not going to do anything and them not doing anything would be really detrimental financially to school districts. My particular school district, we would lose around $27 million, I believe, from our budget, which we're already not funded fully as it is. And so losing that kind of money would really be detrimental. And so that's something that we kind of have to battle here in Arizona every year is to see whether or not it's going to get raised so we can continue doing business for our schools. I think it's really important for people to have a deeper understanding on the ways in which lobbies understand the power of local elected officials, like seats, right? Like lobbies on the Christian right, they have a really deep understanding of the impact local power holds. And so you and I who've been living in Arizona for a long time, organizing here, are aware of the ways in which these lobbies are connected to uh, different religious organizations and push their agendas in the school district. For example, what's going on with Tom Horn trying to push mm -hmm. PragerU into the school districts, right? You came under fire for being vocal and being concerned about the safety and well-being of LGBTQI students in allowing another organization to provide teacher resources and to provide teachers to work in that district. I think what was really scary and I think what people don't realize and after you were vocal, you were doxxed and harassed for months. Understanding that now 
right? Because you wouldn't think that people would come after you for being vocal and caring about youth. Like, how has that reframed the ways that you move forward and continue to serve? Because we still see a lot of apathy with parents because it feels like not real sometimes until it happens to you. What do you think parents should know about the lobbies and these organizations that really are having bigger impacts than they than they even realize on their children's education? I think first and foremost, we have to even educate people. I think when you're in this space, because we live and breathe it, right? A lot of people are really stuck in survival. You know, a lot of people, their mind isn't on what lobby is controlling what, like they all know it's messed up. Like we, everybody knows that, right? But even something as fundamental as the fact that a lot of families in our community don't even really know how to navigate our education system in the most basic ways because that's how it's designed to be. It's, it's confusing. It's There are a lot of barriers when you take into the consideration that communities where English is not the first language and those resources for another language is not there there's so much more that has to be done first before we can even get to where people understand what these organizations controlling what are. So I think that's where we we really do need to start is educating the fundamentals because even what I learned as a school board member is I can't approach this like an activist. I can't. That is what contributed to what happened last year. I've had to come to terms that even if I don't open my mouth, I do trigger people for whatever reason. <laughs> me being who I am, me being elected, <laughs> me being the top vote getter of my election, it's triggering to a lot of people, right? So part of the reasons I had actually flew out to Kentucky was how to reframe my communication, not to where I'm not giving the message that needs to be given, but giving it in a way to where it opens people up to actually be in the mindset to want to talk about the real issue and the real issues that our kids are not receiving the education that they deserve. There's a lot of things that go into that, but I also have to recognize my role as a governing board member. And there are certain things I can hold accountable and there's a way that I can do it that hopefully won't get me with another target on my back, but I can still do the things and advocate for the things that need to be done for. It's just once you're on this side, it is a completely different realm and the dangers are very real. And so you have to be strategic. You know, what's really interesting about the folks that were coming after you and the critique of your decisions and votes as a member of the board was that the decision that the board made to cancel a contract with a particular organization the decision was made by a unanimous board of five members, but for some reason, you were the one who was targeted and called out by detractors and was subject to all of this vitriol. What do you think that was about? Oh, I know what that was about. I'm fat. I'm black. I'm brown. I cuss. I mean, I'm unapologetically who I am. My board picture has me in cat ears you know, which was a sense of joy for me. It was actually a gift for my son. And I wore him because it made me feel, made me feel safe. Because like when I would wear it prior to getting elected, people like, oh my God, like I didn't even realize those weren't your ears. I thought that was your hair just done all kind of cool. And so it was like a fun thing for me. And also, I mean, I did it because I'm there serving kids. You know, I want the kids to know that, you know, this is a person who wants to understand your perspective, who wants to know where you're coming from. So for me, it was about trying to break down a wall 
to where so many people feel like they can't talk to their elected officials. A lot of people feel like when you're an elected official, you look at yourself as an authoritative figure. And that's not how I look at being elected. And so I wanted to like break down those walls. But I found that the ways that I was trying to be vulnerable with this particular part of the community triggered them and quite frankly pissed them off. Even before the whole thing that went down, I already had people (laughs) trying to get me recalled because they didn't like my bio because my bio wasn't professional. They felt it was embarrassing that I put I like hot wings with the right kind of ranch and things that sparkle. But my whole thing was I don't feel the need to talk about all these things I've done because it's not about all these things I've done. It's about the things that I'm trying to accomplish with my community. And I also wanted people to see that you can be a regular schmegular person. You know, if you have the passion and the will to learn how to do this job, you can do it, right? You don't need to have four-year college degree or um, like all these professional accreditations. You can just be a girl from the hood, you know? Like, um, And so I think that triggered people is that I was trying to be my most authentic self and I didn't cater to respectability politics. I was just Tamilia, whereas a lot of other people, they play the game, they play the role, they put on the mask, they make sure they have the natural color hair, no piercings, no tattoos, no cuss words coming out of their mouth and they're still not happy where they are and they're still getting shitted on. So, I mean, I was kind of like, well, it is what it is. Whatever happens, happens. And I think that triggers people when they see that you're not conforming to to society and yet you still hold this power. And I think that that's what has always drawn me to you. Like as a person, Steven knows all the shit I do, like, because he hears about it. I'm like, oh, I'm doing all the shit, right? Like, right now I'm in the middle of, like, trying to figure out how to word an email around messaging. And I'm, like, talking to, like, different people, like, is it going to be all right? Am I going to, like, burn shit up if I send this thing on messaging? Because their messaging is off, right? <laughs> and um, and being kind of worried about it. because, But we have lived experience, right? We know what something sounds like. And we're like, actually, that doesn't track with what needs to be said, right? Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that about you. And I think whenever I'm in spaces, like in Phoenix, people will be like, you need to connect with Amelia. And I was like, oh, I already know her, you know, uh, we already know each other, but you're really respected and you're really loved. And I think that's the power of being a mom who cares, who keeps showing up, who keeps doing the work. My question to you is now that you're months later, you know what it feels like to be in public office, you're trying to continue to be thoughtful and or rethink strategies from the ways maybe you would have organized in the past. How do you move forward as a as a mom knowing that there's going to be setbacks, challenges? Does it make you not want to be in public office? Absolutely. Last year was probably one of the hardest times of my life. And not only was it the hardest, one of the hardest times of my life, it was very public. What a lot of people don't know is I started getting phone calls at two o'clock in the morning after it hit. I got calls on my personal phone. I got calls on my district phone, messages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, you name it, two o'clock in the morning. And I mean, I know people are vile, but it literally knocked the wind out of me. Some of the messages I got. There was one message because my wife had woke up with me and I was telling her what was going on. She took my phone away from me because 
Obviously, she didn't want me to spiral, but there is a message that I got where someone said they were going to follow me and shoot up wherever I was. And I couldn't just think about myself. I then had to think about my kid. I had to call his school. I had to let his governing board members know what was going on because I am friends with them. And I had to let his school know this is what was happening. My son missed almost two weeks of school because of that. We couldn't leave the house. My family got followed. And I'm so grateful that we had our community to help us through that. I see the trauma it cost my own child. Towards the end of last year, like a couple months ago, (laughs) we all sat down and we had a very serious conversation because there were times where I had so much anxiety on the dais. I thought I was going to have a heart attack or a stroke. Like, I'm not even kidding. And my son had a sat down with me because I went out and I spoke at a protest across from the World Series. Um, for Palestine. And that wasn't the plan at first, but that's what happened. And that night he he cried to me and he said, I know you love your community, mom. He's like, and I know you will do anything to fight. He's like, but I'm your son and I don't want to lose my mom. And the anxiety that he has dealt with does make me feel really guilty because one of the things I promised them was that if I got elected, it wouldn't take over our life. And it did that in very rapidly and in a very hostile way. So do I feel guilty? I do definitely feel guilty sometimes for being in office, but I've also had the conversation with my own family about our boundaries and what I will respect, giving them my word that next time we will be better prepared and that I will be more mindful of where I'm placing my person so they don't have to worry. That's a really interesting dynamic to being a public person in service because it's not like you're a public person aggrandizing well and fame and accolades. You're a public person fighting for the rights of the least among us, of the most marginal among us, of the most vulnerable among us, and still Still, you come under attack and still you have to worry about not only your personal safety, but the safety of your family, of your children, of your friends, of members of your own community. And I don't think people fully appreciate what it is to be an activist, to be an advocate, to stand in the breach for other people. You know, it's it's one thing to, you know, defend yourself. It's a completely different thing to say, hey, you know what? That marginalized community, they're suffering and I'm going to do something about it. And then to be victimized because you say, hey, you know what? No more. And it's it's interesting specifically as it relates to the work that you were doing and the particular public stances that you've taken, because notwithstanding the fact that you were fighting for the rights of other people, people started to make it about you. How did you redirect that negative energy to continue to do the positive work that you're doing? A lot of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> First off, I will completely hope be transparent with y'all. I don't know. I I disassociated and went through the motions, which is kind of probably more of a testament of how much like it means to me to do this work because it was just like muscle memory. Just keep going. Just keep going. I think going forward, I just had to find myself again. I did have to take care of my mental health because on top of school board, I actually right after I got elected had lost a couple of people that were really important to me. And so still being on the, oh shit, I really actually just won my election and now I'm getting thrown into 
what it means to be a governing board member, going to all these events and trainings and going to meetings and whatnot and having this grief that's just kind of like chilling over my head, like still dealing with like the things that everyday people, like you said, I'm not rich. Like I live off 27, like just genuinely like not rich. So I was still dealing with being able to afford my bills. I had got laid off in the middle of my campaign. Like, and it was, it was a lot. How were you able to continue to move forward with all of that behind you? All of that still on your shoulders. Thought about little Tamilia and the things that I wish she had known, so she could have been better prepared for life, been better prepared for school. And not saying that like I I didn't have access to things as I definitely did, but there were things about like my own person. Like I'm late diagnosed ADHD. Didn't know that. If I had known that back then, probably would have explained why I flunked like half a middle school. But. <laughs> just learning different things about myself and I'm like yo like if I had known about these resources if I had known that had this information or if I had just known that I could get accommodations because of the way my brain processed right I didn't know those things and being a mom and encountering the things that my own child needed to support his education and knowing just like there was no manual to help us get through that there was there was nothing, no one who was like, okay, you look out for this, this, and that, and this might mean this, this, and that, right? Like, we kind of had a trial and error, and because of that, like, there were times where our kid didn't get the things that he needed, and now we've, like, gotten in a groove, so, like, he's good, but knowing how many parents don't know that information, we just expect, you know, for they know what they're doing. You know, and sometimes with our education system, a lot of the times it's so overwhelmed that a lot of things do get missed. And so I kept that in my North Star and just thought that if I can be here and I can provide access to information, I can provide access to resources and really drive like what we should be focused on is our students able to learn, are students able to get the information that they need and not so they can take a test, not so they can get employed, not so they can go off and do all these grand things, but so they can be open to learning. They can be open to getting new information because learning should be fun. Learning should be like something people look forward to no matter how it looks. And I know I can do that. I know I can do these things and I know I have the connections community support to get it done and so I think that's what just kept me going was knowing that my presence is important even as hard as it is it is it is really important in that space we know that LGBTQIA youth who are supported in schools thrive and do better I mean you're just talking about the ways in which you could have thrived I think about my husband who um, was undocumented and an immigrant in elementary school and couldn't get a lot of those resources, right? Like it just wasn't available. I think he didn't get like, he didn't get glasses until he was 26. He didn't even know he couldn't see. And so like, you know, seeing the world differently, being like, I can see shit. Like, you know, blue is mine. If you didn't have constraints, if our school system wasn't moving into a deep deficit because of vouchers, like if you had all the money in the world, what would be the most essential things you would implement in educational spaces to make sure that they were inclusive and accessible for all types of families, right? Like we're not even talking just LGBTQ, but immigrant families, like low income, what programming, what would be your dream school situation? And dream big. I have thought about dream this. Work. Okay. I have definitely it. thought about this. I think for me, first and foremost, because we need a space, right? We need to bring some like life to this to the schools. There's so drive and like and I know they're trying they're old you know like the buildings are old and whatnot like not trying to show them but I would love to see a space that honestly 
is artful, colorful, something that breathes like this is a place where I can just vibe, you know what I mean? And and have like have that happiness, like a museum kind of, right? Museums are in- inspirational of learning. I think that would be really dope. I think mental health wellness starting at the youngest, pre-K. You can have conversations on how to how to soothe yourself, how to have, hey, I need five minutes. I can't do this right now. Let's empower our kids to have autonomy. Give them tools to learn and be able to figure out what they're communicating. I think that's one of the hugest issues we have right now is that adults are expecting these little developing minds to operate like an adult's mind and yet adults can't even adult (laughs) at all and so you're expecting these kids whose brains are still developing who are learning how to navigate this world to be able to do the things that you as an adult a lot of times just are not willing to do so I think we need to take out that adultism you know learn what it means to be in community with each other because I learn a lot from my kid I learn a lot from a lot of kids you know (laughs) I'm like oh that's like really dope and so it's a two-way street it's not just that I'm an adult you do what I say and that's the end of it we do need to get back to not hoarding our power over our students right I would really love to see accessibility because (laughs) so many of these schools are not accessible for whatever reason like I said they're old and old and ways of accessibility is weird and so there's that but I would love to see libraries more libraries that are filled with books that allow our students to learn about other populations other demographics other cultures other types of people I would love to see those different things actually shown throughout the school and really take away that power dynamic and make it more of a like collaboration and I think when you give your kids autonomy and you teach them the importance of of their voice. I think as they grow, you'll see less of those problems that is oftentimes used to criminalize our kids. You know, they don't care. They, they're disengaged. They don't want to come to school. But we also know that our society uses third grade reading scores to determine whether or not our students are going to end up in a jail cell or in college, right? And so we're not even proactively trying <laughs> to stop the problem. We're waiting until they're in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade calling them aggressive and wondering where it got how it got to that and where it got to that is because after they were done being cute you decided just shove them to the side and that's an issue so I think I would like to see like more collaboration in schools I would like to see students that are typically considered troubled students listen to what what really impacted them and what made it to where they don't have a good experience in school. I think there's a lot of listening that needs to happen and just really sitting to unpack it because the way our system is right now, it is harming a lot of our kids. And a lot of that has to do with adult behaviors, not the kids' behaviors. Their their behaviors are a symptom of what adults are doing. I'm just going to have to just jump in here really quickly because you've said so many really good things. There are models for the kinds of schools you're describing. So it's not even like you're talking about a pie in the sky thing. Like there's STEM buildings that are specifically built around light, around nature, around green, around art, around music, making the environment as welcoming and safe as possible mood rooms for students to be able to go and regulate mm-hmm. their mood and the ability to take yourself out of an environment because you're being overstimulated and go to a space that's specifically created to allow you to get your combat before resuming your regular activity. These are not 
pie in the sky things. These are real things that are being implemented in places where people are not being controlled by moms defending liberty, where you don't have these plants, these lobbyists who are getting parents all riled up about what's happening in schools. I was having a conversation with my friend the other day about all this parents' rights movements foolishness. And I'm like, how many of these parents actually know what's going on in their kid's school at any point in time from grade A through 12? How many of them could tell you on any given day what that kid did, what they're studying, what their homework was, where they went to on their last school trip, what they had for lunch, who their friends are? How many parents can actually tell you any of that stuff? And some parents may be able to give you a little bit, but they don't know jack shit about most of their kids. And so as a school board member, as a governing member, how does that strike you when you have parents who you know don't give a fuck showing up and asking for this and that and the other thing when they're not even going to parent-teacher conferences, they're not even looking at their kids' homework or grades or assignments, but they're sitting and yelling about what books should and shouldn't be on the subs in school. How does that How does that strike you? And what do you do about it? You know, I'm going to be honest, it pisses me off. And it takes me back to, I think it was 2020, I believe, when the schools were shut down and you had a bunch of the parents who were like, no, we need our kids back in school. We need our kids back in school. And overwhelmingly, it was rich, wealthy, white parents who now are confronted with the fact that they had to be around their kids. <laughs> and you actually found overwhelmingly in our communities that we wanted our kids to be safe. We didn't want them back in school. And the thing that upset me the most is that the premise was the poor black and brown kids. They don't have internet. They don't have this. They don't have that. They need to be back in school when really we wanted our kids where they were going to be safe. We were getting, you know, for our family, we wanted our son to do online schooling until he was able to get a vaccine, which didn't happen until I think he wasn't able to go back to school in person until seventh grade. But at the end of the day, we did. I didn't want, I had COVID. I had gotten COVID and I was died from it. And I didn't want my kid to go through that because I'm still dealing with problems from having COVID back in 2020, right? And so it's infuriating because most of the people who I've seen come up and do things like that, when you go and look through their pictures, not a black or brown person, disabled, queer, nothing. Talk about it. It's sight. Talk no about one. it. But you want to sit here and speak for my community. And like I tell people, I'm not speaking for my community. I can't do that because we're not a monolith. I'm not the spokesperson for all black girls. I'm not the spokesperson for all Latina girls. I'm not the spokesperson for all fat girls. Just genuinely, I'm not. All I can go off is based off of what I've experienced and what I have seen seen other people experience. I can tell you what I was told on the campaign trail about things that did matter to people. And no, you're not going to hear them here in this space because they don't feel safe to come into a space and do this because look at what happened to me. And it was completely twisted. I didn't even say what they said. I said, what I said was I have concerns. <laughs> I have concerns about this, but it was twisted. And it's scary because we wonder how come our kids aren't thinking critically, but you as an adult can't even take the time to listen, to really hear what's being said. Instead, you're pissed off because you feel like me having the same rights as you is taking away from you. You're looking at it from a deficit rather than a plus. Facts. I think too, what's really interesting, uh, this conversation is really making me think of one of my favorite teachers. She was my fourth grade teacher. Her name was Miss Farish. She was an ex-opera singer and like literally dressed like with like a beehive and like, you know, a dress every day. But every morning she would make us sing in the, like, she would make us sing. So we sang 
uh, Three Dog Night, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, and The Yellow Submarine. But that year, we got to go to four, four operas. I remember us getting to go. And like, I think about the ways in which I would have never been exposed to that. Like my parents, my dad didn't even graduate high school, right? Like they grew up here working class. If I take them to a museum, they look bored, right? But this opened up my world in a way that like I wouldn't have. And I think about the ways that schools have been gutted and defunded, um, how arts have been removed, music has been removed. And it's, it. we are creating, like these are cultural spaces where we're shaping the next generations. And I think that you stating clearly People don't even know how to navigate the school system, Lizette. Let's start there. Just really knocked the wind out of me because I had, as a mother of a trans child, I had to teach myself how to navigate that. And then I had to teach other parents how to, how to navigate the school system for themselves, right? How to change their, if they didn't have updated name changes and gender markers, like what do you do to navigate to make sure your documentation in school is correct or that your child has access to A, B, and C? Like I had to teach that for myself. And so what you're saying is so true. And, and I'm wondering if there are resources that help. I know for us, like our parent community down in Tucson, like I will walk any parent through. Um, you know, how to how to get through school and which districts are what. But, I, you know, and I know that we've created resources for HRC, but do you know of any resources that parents can go to, you know, nationally, locally, where they can, they can get the parent advocate that sits in on their school meeting with the principal? And I've done that before for families, right? But like, what are some resources that people can do, can rely on? Right now, there's not a whole lot. And I know there are people who are actively trying to um, change that. Um, I think we do need to start connecting more with those who are local because local elected officials are so important. They hold so much power because they can they can help us navigate. I know there are organizations like Chispas, Poder. Um, there's all of them do it really. Um, I think Instituto does it, MassLib. Um, they do do like days at the Capitol because really a lot of the problems in public education comes down to funding and it comes down to we need to get our legislators to actually do something more than what they have been. And so I do know a lot of organizations um, do do education, political education, um, Black Political Cultivation Arizona also does that working family party. They also do political education to know how to talk to your elected officials. But I think the one place that is, it, there is a gap is how to even do the basic parts to be able to communicate with the system. Because that's, that's where the hugest gap is. I mean, it, it's it's intimidating. You know, you're taught that these people yeah. know what they're doing. They're elected. Like they have all the credentials, and so it's intimidating to talk to someone who you've been conditioned to feel is superior to you. And that's why I wanted to change that. I'm not superior to anybody, even if I don't agree with what you're saying. Like I'm still not better than you. Like neither good nor bad, wrong nor right. Like you're you do you. I'm I'm me. I'm learning just as much as you are. So I think, but like I said, I do know. There are people who are actively trying to change that and make it to where the education is coming down more to a fundamental level. And I know that's also something that I'm trying to accomplish at the school board is most of our community is not in this space like this. They don't understand all these acronyms. I don't even understand all these acronyms half the time. You know, we need to make this accessible, even accessible to our students, because they also have a right to come and talk to us at our board meetings and let us know what's going on. So I think we're all going to have to pick up the plate to get that done. But I also think 
think we need to make sure that we're working together so it's not burning out our own capacities and we're not stretching ourselves too thin. And I kind of think that's where we need to do better is more collaboration with each other. So just again, following up on on that last response, as a parent yourself, you know what it's like to create affirming spaces and safe spaces for our children. Now, as a member of the board, what have you been doing to help create more affirming and safer schools in Arizona? The only thing I can say is speaking up because I think whereas a lot of other elected officials get the privilege to be able to go around to the schools and really be in this space. The work I have to do has to be different because of everything that happened last year. I tend to stay in the background more as far as not being in the schools per se, but I do have a lot of conversations with staff members. We have been looking at ways to give the students a voice so they can see themselves in the work. I think setting the expectation of who needs to be centered, I think is really empowering. I will say we actually did have a student come to one of our school board meetings and speak up about how they felt about a policy. Um, When I was running, I had told a couple of students, you know, you can share your experience and it may not necessarily do anything right now. I was like, but you used your voice and that's really powerful. And so I think some of the most proudest moments for me is seeing our, our students come and speak and see our students take that step into leadership. Even with my own son, he's done so much, you know, in speaking up and advocating the pride I have of seeing him be able to then step forward and advocate for himself or advocate for his friends or whatever. I think that's probably one of the most rewarding things for me as a parent. Our final question is to tell us three things that parents of trans and non-binary kids can do to support their kids in school. Never stop being that fierce advocate for your kid, first and foremost. You're not crazy. Your kid deserves it. Your kid should already have it. (laughs) So never stop. I think also because it is such a fight, it is so exhausting. Remember to have a soft place to land because these systems and this dysfunction is made to tire you. It's made to exhaust you. It's made to make you give up, right? So make sure you're taking those times to have a soft place to land for yourself, for your child and hold that very sacred. It's not always going to be pretty, but it'll always be authentic. And I think that's super important. And I think third is remember you're not alone. There are so many organizations out there and I think oppression thrives in isolation. Abuse thrives in silence. And so remember that reaching out is going to benefit you so much more than keeping it in. And there's so many safe and affirming spaces that you will be able to take off your oxygen mask and breathe freely. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is a thing that you and your child both deserve. And so I think that would be my best advice to give to our families. Oh my God. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing conversation. And I'm going to have to challenge you because you were like, oh, Oh, you know, I don't like talking. Child, <laughs> I can't tell. This is an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, y'all so, so much. Thank Sorry. you. No, thank you all for having me here. It was my pleasure. And let me know how I can support. And if I can, I definitely will. So you already do so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Y'all have a beautiful day. You, you too. too. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Paramore. 
The Ben Paramore slammed Tennessee's Republican-led House of Representatives for what they called blatant racism after a lawmaker objected to a resolution honoring singer-songwriter Allison Russell's recent Grammy win, but allowed a similar measure for the rock band's win to pass. The group, who won two Grammys at the 2004 award ceremony earlier this month, announced that they will not accept any acknowledgement or honor from the Tennessee House until Allison Russell is given the same recognition. Russell, who was born in Montreal but has forged a career in Nashville, was up for four Grammys the evening of the show and took home the awards for Best American Roots Performance for her 2003 single, Eve Was Black. How do two Nashville staples who both win awards at the same Grammy event get totally different receptions to resolutions to honor their accomplishments? Oh, right. Racism. And I'm so pleased that Paramore called it out for what it is. And this is why Paramore is our ally of the week. Congratulations to Paramore. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Oklahoma's new Republican superintendent of public schools, Ryan Walters. Walters appointed Chaya Rickick, the right-wing social media influencer and creator of Libs of TikTok, to the state's Library Advisory Committee. In announcing the appointment of this divisive figure, Ryan said, and I quote, she is on the front lines showing the world exactly what the radical left is all about, lowering standards, hoarding schools, and pushing woke indoctrination on our kids. And for those of you keeping score, Oklahoma is where next Benedict was beaten while they're in a restroom at school, where Library library books, where standards in school, where woke indoctrination is being pushed on our children by the right. It's so upsetting. This woman should not be being put in positions of power because she continuously uses her platform to push violence against LGBTQIA and other marginalized people. I don't understand how she was able to attend January 6th and still be appointed to these levels of leadership. It's because it's do as I say and not as I do. And this is why Ryan Walters is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Tamilia Valenzuela, for joining us today. And I've got to thank my always amazing and on-point co-host, Lisette Trio, for keeping me on my toes. Thanks, Steven. You know I'm your ride or die. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. At this point in the show, I usually remind you to like, follow, subscribe, and do all the things you have to do to stay up with everything we're doing on the Parent Advocate Podcast. But I now have to tell you, we also have a YouTube channel. So if you want to watch the interviews and Lisette and I's banter, please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Parent Advocate on YouTube. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.